Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hi, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and welcome back to my favorite time of the week. Uh, as part of the Inspiring Leadership series, I'm here with Brigadier Jim Richardson, who is the CEO of the Hague Housing Trust. And we're actually here in one of the sites, uh, a brand new build, very impressive build, that servicemen who've been disabled or who have fallen upon difficulty are able to come and benefit from what Jim and his huge team do around the country. But Jim, uh, I, I've chosen as one of the inspiring leaders to talk to because he's had a phenomenal career. We've known each other for some 30 years or more. Um, began as what people would describe as a private soldier, as a Royal Signals uh, technician, and has gone all the way up to brigade commander, which is one hell of an achievement. The only other person I think I know was John Stokoe, who also had a similar background yeah. and made it to, to Major General. But Jim, a little bit more about what you're doing now as a CEO and uh, just a you know, sh short bit on your, your, your history and your background. Yeah, well, I left the Army um, six years ago. I had a great career, 35 years, sort of man and boy is the words, because I was 16 when I joined. Uh, and it was very important to me that I came to something that grabbed my enthusiasm, that I wanted to do, that I, you know, that I love. The old adage, find a job you love, you never work a day in your life. I'd had that in the army and, and I wanted it and I wanted to continue and, and by helping veterans and families of veterans, you know, in, in housing need, it's it was just been brilliant. I'd be able to put, you know, my enthusiasm into developing more homes, making the, the charity you know, face the contemporary challenge of what people need um, to do that. I've got a you know, great team, some ex-military, most of them not actually. Yeah. And, and just, you know, bringing to them, you know, um, a real sense of purpose as to as to why we've got to cherish veterans in our country. And you've learned, you know, that you've been involved in the military for so long. We were talking earlier about some of the inspiring leaders that you've worked for, you know, General Mike Walker and um, then you Parker, were, yeah. Yannick Parker. And then you were working for General Petraeus, the American general. You, you mentioned that experience as being one a story that stuck in your mind. Do you want to share that story? Yeah, it's, it's the one that I pick out. And I, and I have... Worked with you know a lot of inspiring leaders all the way up from my most junior days in the army. But I, I just picked David Petraeus uh, really because um, I, I was I got to Iraq in sort of December 2006, about 12 weeks before he did, and, and it was Iraq was going down the pan. And it, uh, uh, there was a you know, civil civil war. Uh, we really hadn't thought of what we were going to do after we got rid of Saddam Hussein. Uh, we were not ready for post-conflict, and it was deteriorating. And David Petraeus came and just had courage in his own conviction of, of how to solve it. And he, he convinced and brought resource in, uh, fantastic uh, level of resource of you know, Arabists, industrialists, educationalists, um, you know, people from, from all walks of life and society, mainly Americans. Um, and along with another, uh, an American H.L. McMaster, who I've now become great friends with, we co-chaired his Brains Trust. That's what it got called. And we sort of just took to pieces what was going wrong in Iraq and what were the barriers of progress to put it, to put it right. 
But in, in doing so, what I saw in David Petraeus is this, this leader, so convinced in his own mind of, of the, way to, you know, the way to go on and, and to put things right, uh, even when there were detractors and, and, and criticism. Because that's from, what many from, of the, from, the, the leaders listening from will, other, will have the same challenge, uh, will they? Well, well yes. I, you, know, I, you know, I think they will. But he had this, this great courage of his own conviction, and he was right. Uh, and it, it was just very inspiring to work for him. He, he was a, such a powerful intellect, but not an intellectual bully in any way, and, and he just brought the best out of everybody. But you know, the one thing that I, you know, I noticed is before I went to Iraq, I had a view of the American army of being sort of risk-averse, uh, into force protection, doing the job, worrying about body bags, body count, and, and things like that. And he was just so completely different. Uh, 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 in, in a way of, of, of no, we actually we've got to take some risks to make this right. Uh, and he dispersed the American uh, ground forces there. He found that we weren't getting enough intelligence, we weren't having enough influence at local areas, we weren't bringing along local leaders. And if they didn't know us, how would they trust us? And how would we turn around uh, the situation where it had just become this horrible internecine bloodbath? Yeah. Uh, and um, and he dispersed his, his, his troops. Now, the casualty levels went up initially, his own casualty uh, uh, levels. And a, you know, and a weaker leader you know, might have retreated from it. Uh, maybe a weaker support, and he yeah. reported directly to the President of the United States, uh, might have said, rethink your, your plan here. We, we are, and you, we're getting body bags flown into, you know, back, you know, back to the you know, US in their dozens. Um, but he didn't, and he stuck with it. And uh, and we turned the corner, and casualty rates came down, and influence grew, and and really it was the Iraqi people, them, you know, themselves that saw a different future for themselves that turned away from violence and turned towards trying to build a more stable country. Fantastic. You know, Iraq still has its problems, but yeah. it was an awful place in 2006. Yeah, and, and, and so that was from one inspiring leader. Then the other thing I wanted, you know, people are always interested in sort of human stories of someone with a successful career like you. You've had moments when you got things wrong and you've, you've told me how you quickly learned from that. What is that I've got wrong? Learn it. But you had a story of when you were you know, younger squadron commander and, and a mistake you made and what you've learned from it. Do you want to share that one? Yeah, and I, I think it's connected to the stress story, I think, you know, in, in, in the fact that he had the courage of his conviction. He, you know, he, did, he, he knew what was right there. And I didn't do that one. So I, it seems so trivial and low level, but uh, I was a young technician my, uh, myself. My rank came to me because of my technical qualifications. I didn't compete for it from for two lads corporal and corporal. I went off to Santos when I was a corporal, but um, I didn't have to compete for it. And um, I had a couple of young technicians in the squadron and they were about to be promoted to full corporal two tapes. And I was persuaded that we were going to do this in a fun way. And I was going to pull out their tapes out of a cornflake box. Their, their promotion tapes. Their promotion yeah. tapes out of the cornflake box. And um, you know, for the merriment of the vast majority of soldiers who worked for every promotion they've got, but it sort of devalued the promotion to the young individual. And I saw them sort of slightly crestfallen. I knew it was wrong, but I sort of courted popularity. Yeah. At the time, you know, I was persuaded to do it. Wouldn't it be fun to do it? I courted popularity, but my better judgment said, 
No, I, I had been one of them. I thought, you know, been benefit of time promotion. Yeah. You know, myself in the past, and and I, you know, and I got it. I I got it wrong. And from then on, no, I trusted my own instinct. I never caught a pair. You make you make the decision that you believe in. Right, you know, whether it's popular or not, you make it and you stick with it. Yeah. And that's that's what I that's what I've done since, and I've seen other leaders do. Good. And, and finally, the last sort of um, short, short uh, comment from you, really, Jim, is what would be your, your short leadership-inspiring tip for other leaders who are, who are listening to us? Um, it's a military term, and there are so many terms that interplay between civil life and, and, and the military, uh, and we've learned, the military have learned of civil and vice versa. But my tip is situational awareness. Everybody has to know what is going on. And in that, it therefore brings you know, communication and, and making sure that communication is full uh, there. But everybody's got to know what's going on. How can they play their part? How can you allow people to be empowered to do what you want them to do and even surpass what they do if, if they don't have the shared same picture of what the situation is? Situational awareness Brilliant. in any walk uh, is the fundamental thing. Jim? A pleasure seeing you again. Congratulations on a very successful career. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks. Hi, welcome back to Inspiring Leadership Dialogue. And this is the extra bit of the session where I'm with Brigadier Jim Richardson, the CEO of the Hague Housing Trust and also a very successful army commander during his time in the forces. And we're really just having a bit of dialogue about various things. Um, Jim, great having you back. Um, you recently had a, a visit, a VIP came to visit the Hague Housing Trust. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, uh, not long after we did that piece uh, to camera and we did it in front of some of our new homes, which, which we've been developing, uh, we had our patron, who's Her Majesty the Queen, come and, uh, and open them and had a, a really grand day with Her Majesty meeting members of staff, people who made it happen, and a lot of the beneficiaries who will come and live you uh, in those homes, and I just, you know, for you know, for me, it was it was a culmination of a lot of hard work and effort by lots of people who work for the charity, and some whose work is not necessarily seen. Mm. They pay the bills, or or they run the IT system, but but it all came together here, and they and you could just see palpably feel their their excitement, their pride. Uh, in you know a, a raw visit that just went swimmingly well, mm. and I managed to be really engaged um, with 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 the veterans. It was you know a very proud proud moment for me as well, and um, and I met her Majesty a number of times, but I was with her for an hour, and wow. uh, and that's just now she's an inspiring leader. Jim. Oh, I mean, she... what what a, if if you look at her qualities, what 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 sticks in your memory, and and perhaps that others could take from that, and just our way of being with people. I think her emotional intelligence, uh, um, a legacy that she leaves uh, uh, behind, her, her, her purpose, this this absolute steadfast rock of of uh, of example. Yeah. And as she spoke to everybody, she engaged with them really warmly. Uh, she must do hundreds and hundreds of. Of, of engagements, but to make everybody she meets feel special and mm. the Queen is focused on them at at that time. And it's, you know, a legacy that I fear, you know, won't be repeated in my lifetime and and just, you know, what a, just what a high bar to set of, yeah. of, of you know, of the leader of our nation. But, but isn't that an example 
to us about when we're with someone, really being with them. I mean, I, I had my, as you did, my, my moment with her when I went to get my uh, award in the palace from her. And she made me feel like I only had, I don't know, yeah. two minutes. Yeah. But she made me feel like I was the only person in the room that matters. There were other people who were getting knighted and all sorts of things, far more important awards. But she was really, seemed really interested. Didn't have a FBI earpiece. Nope. No, nobody whispering, oh, this yeah. is him. And, and, and she asked me questions about what I'd done and how I got it. I just thought, that's a real skill, that being present. How have you found it? You know, because you've had to go and meet various people and do various things all the time. You do as CEO of the Hague Housing Trust. How, yeah. how do you stay present with people? Yeah, it, 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 preparation um, is, is the way you do it. And, and, and actually notice... You know, just make the effort that that some people want to want to meet you. I mean, when I was a commanding officer, a, a regiment, you get to Christmas. It's about you know we're about to get into December now, and, and most people say, "Oh gosh, what you know, a silly season." I've got to say, I've got to go to all of these squadron parties and things like that, and then you go to the wives' club function, you go to this function, and everything else, and suddenly you you're out, you're out twenty times sort of in, mm. in December, and. As I took over Kibana the Regiment, I said, look, first year I'm going to do everything. I'm just going to do everything and, and accept the invitation. With the intention, I thought, of, of next year, of just picking and choosing which of the best ones were and, and politely declining the others. But actually, when it came down the second year, I said, no, they've invited me. They want to see me uh, at, at their function. I'm certainly, I'm certainly not the monarch or the queen, but... You know, in a, in a little squadron inside a you know regiment, you know, young lance corporal is attachment commander, or whatever the commanding officer coming to to his his function, and then just preparing myself. You know, I, I always have been of 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 you know wanting to communicate with soldiers at the level they are, get to know them, um, and being able to to break my way into a discussion with them that would inevitably be about our military capability and how we're delivering it. But the first thing you say to a soldier is, is, is your vehicle battle-worthy and what faults are there on it? it, it they just freeze. Yeah. So you, you start by, by understanding that they support Sunderland or support Newcastle, and you, and you start from there. Yeah, and... and- I think that's, it's very interesting. So I, I remember seeing a CEO of one of the big famous high street banks and uh, he'd wander around because uh, he was told he had to go, and, you know, mill on the floor and go and see various people because it wasn't his habit. He was very academic and ethereal and uh, he wasn't good with people. His wife was good with people. He wasn't, you know, she often was the one who who chatted to people, but he had to go out there and talk to them. And, he, and, and you could just see him, he'd stood there and he just didn't know what to talk about, how to relate to anybody. He couldn't even rest his butt on the edge of the desk and say, how's it going? And you know, if, if you were me, if there was one thing I could do to make life better for you, what would it be? Oh, well, can you get the lift working? Or something like, couldn't do it, yeah. could not do it. Yeah. But I think it, I mean, one of the things that I've always admired about you is, you know, beginning life as a technician and then becoming a Lance Corporal very quickly, uh, you understood the perspective of what life is like as a soldier. And how did you find soldiers related to you because you've been a soldier compared to other colleagues who were just straight in perhaps as a, an officer straight out of university or something? Yeah, I, I think you know, initially, although in my whole career, I, I only ever commanded a handful of soldiers who had been peers of mine before I was, oh, yeah, right, yeah. Before I was commissioned. And... Uh, without exception, they you know they were 
you know, they were you know, sort of good about it uh, yeah. in, in a way. I think early on, um, many many of the soldiers knew that I'd been a soldier before, but perhaps just you know, just the way that you you wear wear your berry, carry your webbing, um, where you look after your weapon, your 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 military bearing and everything, and you know, I could spot an ex-soldier, you know, at hundred yards, yeah. and they knew that that. I wasn't a wet behind the ear, you know, yeah. young graduate who just come out of Sanders yeah. that I knew my stuff. But uh, you remind me when I when I went to Sanders, I was there with a good friend of mine, Rod Thomas. Do you remember Rod? Yeah, in I remember Rod. And and Rod was uh, a full corporal when he came in. He'd been the general's driver and operator, very competent guy, Ginge Thomas, as he was. Yeah, yeah. And he was effing this and effing that. Hello, oh you effing Jonathan. And uh, when we left, he said, Jonathan, my man, it's been good meeting you. So Rod had put on. We always took the Mickey out of him. These airs and graces because he thought this is what an officer should be like yeah, and how they yeah, should speak. Yeah. Now, clearly, uh, you know, people do that. But do you reckon you've changed much from that, that Lance Corporal that you, you were when well, to, to the you know, brigadier you are now? If I said no, I think that would be wrong. I, yeah. I have changed, but I've changed with my experience. But I don't think I've changed in my character. Uh, and funny enough, I, uh, I was in Scotland uh, last week doing business with, with the charity and seeing... Uh, the Veterans Commissioner there, but I had an opportunity to meet up with two old friends who I haven't seen for 36 years. 36 years. That we served together in Cyprus before I was commissioned. Uh, and I left Cyprus to go off to, San, to Sandhurst. They continued with their career for, you know, one of them only another year or so, and the other one, you know, three or four years. Uh, and one went to work with British Rail, and the other one went into, into running their, their family business. But, uh, you know, we met up. And then halfway through, we just had lunch, a couple of glasses of wine. And halfway through, they said, Jim, you haven't changed. <laughs> That's you're, nice. You haven't changed. That's you know, nice. you're, you know, we didn't know. We, you know, heard that you'd become a brigadier. And we just didn't know, but you're, you're the same. Yeah. And I, and I went, well, I'm glad I am. It's important. I'm glad It's really, I am. really important. Um, yeah, so... Um, oh, and what about, you've seen people change, what about people who were in the military and they, this, this certain persona is expected a way of behaving, a way of dressing and looking. I was at Santos yesterday with the commandant and meeting some of the young uh, female officers who are coming through, there's a lot more coming through. Um, but they're saying it's quite hard because going out there's a certain expectation of how they're going to dress and the way they're going to look. So we don't want to create clones in the military, but when they move into business, how have you seen people change from how they were in the military to how they are in business? What have you noticed? I think, um, and I can remember at Santos having to go out in a in a blazer, and mm. and even even when I was first you know commissioned, um, if you were in if if you were in the guards when you came into London, you came with a bowler and a brolly, yeah. uh, and <laughs> it was you know, strange because you know, people don't act that way now. I, I've always thought, you know, you, you, I always air myself on formality and become informal. I would never you know, turn up to somewhere in a you know pair of jeans and overneck shirt if I, if I unless I knew them really really well and that yeah. it was that that sort of way. But you can make yourself informal, sort of so sort of quite easy. But you know, I'm glad that we've got rid of some of the codes. Um, that, that used to exist. I, th I think you know they, you know they were past their time. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in a way, and 
quite frankly, I've come across, you know, in both military and civilian times, less than a handful of times when I thought somebody felt embarrassed because they were dressed the wrong way. Uh, yeah. That's not the important thing. No, it isn't. And then if that's what they're worrying about, they've, they've got it a bit wrong. Yeah, they have. The other thing you were talking about earlier, which I, I really enjoyed, was, uh, you know, in the charity, um, helping veterans. And, and you, you were talking about a, quite a special moment when you took them somewhere and it, it helped shift the mindset. Do you want to talk about that? Yes. So um, I joined Hague in, almost directly for military service, been serving you know, for 35 years, man and boy. Uh, and, um, you know, I came, the charity had uh, sort of 50 employees, uh, all doing good stuff. But after about a month, I just made an assessment just by getting to know them and, and walking around, sitting on the edge of the desk, how long have you worked here, what do you do, etc. Then I thought about 75% of the staff came to work. Uh, they just brought professional services, which we remunerated them for. But 25% of it, you know, had their heart on their sleeve and they knew what they were doing and they knew why veterans had to be looked after and they felt special about what they could do. <coughs> and I wanted more of the staff to feel that way. Uh, it was important to me as I made my transition to the military that I got up every day doing something that I loved. You know, theme from the bit we did to Canberra, find a job you love, you never work a day. Yeah, people, people resonated with that very much. And uh, um, I thought that, that actually the staff would become more effective if they just had this more of an emotional connection with what the charity was trying to do, our values and our vision of what we wanted to, uh, to do. So that when they read mission statements or whatever, that we're going to be charitably minded, they actually could feel what it meant. Mm. So um, studying military history myself, having dragged my daughters around various battlefields and we never pass a Commonwealth war grave or whatever, took them to Greece and took them to Thermopylae and they went, great, Dad. You know? <laughs> but um, I... Um, I you know, got funding uh, agreed by the trust the, the trustees, not very expensive, got a coach and took all the staff to Ypres overnight, um, to Ypres in Belgium. Uh, uh, and for got, those who, who are listening who perhaps don't have the military history that you yeah. and I love, yeah. just tell a bit about Ypres and why it was important and where it was. So Ypres was the headquarters of, of the British effort, the British, the salient of Ypres uh, in the First World War, and it, mm. it commanded the salient of Ypres all the way through uh, the First World War. The Somme, uh, when British troops went to the Somme, was actually in the French sector, and uh, uh, we gave effort there, but Ypres was um, the, where the headquarters were, and it's actually where our biggest memorial is, so okay. the Menin Gate at, at, at Ypres. <clears throat> the gate that leads to the town of, uh, of Menin, through which all troops trooped on their way uh, to the battle, that is now being uh, being rebuilt, and the, and the names of fifty four thousand soldiers whose no known grave are inscribed uh, wow. on it. The Belgian uh, fire brigade played the last post at eight o'clock every night. The biggest Commonwealth war grave uh, called Tynecott is some five miles of the mm. road, and that was the objective of the Battle of Passchendaele, the yeah, third, yeah. Bath, third yeah, Battle yeah. of Ypres. And as I took my staff there, and they were guided, and they the penny dropped. Mm. Um, this is why we have remembrance. This is why veterans are special. This is why we've got to care 
for the veterans who are alive now. It, you know, the First World War was, is, the, is the vehicle for educating them as to why veterans are special. Uh, and over the past six years, and we've, we've done it uh, twice, uh, and we've been to Vimy Ridge in the second time, and I've also taken them to the National Arboretum up in, in Staffordshire. Staffordshire. Um, that the staff, you know, 75, 80% of them now contribute to a charity and 20% come to work. Wow, that's really, really impressive. And, and in my experience in different businesses, uh, it's a constant theme in any firm, the why. Why do you do what you do? And if they can't buy into the why, you know, it's back to Goethe's quote, he who has a clear burning why can cope with any what and any how. But I think too many firms, when I find that they're adrift, they haven't got a clear why. They, got, they know what they do and they know how they do it and they're, they're into cranking the handle, as, as one of the guys was talking about in, uh, in Amazon. Um, he said, you know, he, he wants the difference between the people who just crank the handle and just do the job and those who are really passionate about why they come to work. And, in fact, you might have heard Alison Nimmo when she was doing the Manchester rebuild. Um, and um, she said that, that the leader there, he was very clear with them, uh, Sir Howard Bernstein, um, because they were rebuilding Manchester off the IRA bomb. And this was rebuilding the lives of the people of Manchester. And it was creating a real beating heart to Manchester once again. And they would get up to do that. Mm-hmm. So what, whether it's knowing why you're helping the veterans or doing that, it's pretty important, isn't it? What, what's, any, any further thoughts? I think it is. I, I, would, I would, you know, phrase it um, a common purpose. Yeah. Um, um, what, you know, what is our common purpose? And then work out how do I contribute uh, to that? And that's why, going back to the rural visit, it was, it was great. So people in the accounts department who just pay bills, you know, can say, well, it's not just paying bills. You know, I've been, I facilitated, you know, the contractors who have done, you know, who have done this. So, you know, so all those checks and all bank transfers I was doing to our building contractors or our architects, this is what it's delivered. And I've contributed in this because mm. had we not paid our bills on time, they wouldn't have kept working or yeah. whatever. So, that, yeah, that common purpose and everyone understanding what, what, what role they play and then take the, the positivity out of delivering, you know, achieving something yeah. was, uh, is, is powerful. Oh, great. And, and we were just looking over the uh, inspiring leadership model and, you know, what, what makes high-performing leaders and people in business and, and the military. What, what others would you pick out of there that you found really resonate for you as being important for people who are, are listening to, to work on your practical tips and advice yeah. you'd share? So I, th- I think we've, you know, we've spoken about purpose, a little bit about legacy, I, you know, I, I, I think, intelligence. Um, I really work on the resilience of the organisation. Uh, quite funny, my, my finance director has just gone on, on, on holiday uh, and I've sent him away with best wishes, he's going to have a good time. Uh, it's been a busy, busy year. And I can remember the first conversation that we had when he went on his first holiday when, when I arrived. He said, oh, here's my emergency contact number. And then he said, well, what do I need that for? He said, in case we have an emergency. I said, well, what are you going to do for the Caribbean? <laughs> I, you know, I, um, you know, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't need that. You know, you've hopefully you've empowered your staff with, you know, responsibilities that they can step in and do that. And I hope you're training your second in command to be able to do your job. Well, let's just see if she can. <laughs> he looks at me in a strange sort of way and saying, 
So that resilience... Just staying with that one, because yeah. I think that is, that is time and again. You and I were trained that even... I mean, I remember when I was with the Green Hounds doing simulated uh, attacks on uh, Canada on the training ground, and we all had simulated vests on, and if the laser hit you, you were, had to lie down. The umpire took your vehicle out, the warrior, or, or took you personally out. I was shot in the head by a sniper from about a mile away. It was a real, real bugger that was. Um, but uh, you learned that as soon as you were down, uh, the, the, the second in command, Zero, I have command. And they said, I have command, I'll take over. Yeah. And they stepped in straight away. So you yeah. always had someone who took over. Now, this seems such an alien experience for many in leadership. They go, oh, I, I can't, I'm, I'm irreplaceable. You know, I'm going on holiday, but you can always call me and here's my number and, and I'll, I'll do my emails for two hours in the morning before I go out on the beach with the family. No, no. go and have a holiday. But so few do. They always, mm. they feel this sort of like, I've got to be constantly connected because, I'm irreplaceable and no one yeah. can do it without me. I, I think you're right. I, I've got a sort of theory, my theory, why I think uh, that is. And I actually worked to stop it happening within the military before before I, I left. My mantra to everybody was, was look after those people who are who you command and teach them to do your job. And don't worry, don't look up, because I'm looking down at you and I will do the same with you. Just have faith that somebody is developing oh, you. That's good. And then later in the military, I was deputy military secretary. Really, and that just to explain to people who are listening because so it's a key role. It's a chief of operating officer for Army HR, really, the talent manager for the army, and you have five hundred staff in Glasgow, and all of you know all of the career training, selection for appointments, promotions, uh, and development of of everybody in the army, regular and reserve. So, sort of was that was my responsibility, and. I used to explain to people, mainly you know civilians, they said, well, why do you have such a large HR function? I said, well, what you've got to remember is if, if we lose somebody who's a middle manager, a middle manager is an officer or, or is a, a soldier, lose a sergeant, lose a captain or a major, I can't go and recruit one. You have to grow everything from the bottom up. That's true, yeah. And because of that, um, development... Um, education and training, giving people experience and exposure to experience, delegating, empowering, uh, and managing talent, really managing talent, is the only way that the military can sustain its professional outputs. Whereas if I work for HSBC and I lost a middle manager, and ask my HR team to go and recruit another one. Yeah. Well, the, the military can't do that. Yeah. And because of that, it, there is this, this ingrained culture there of of managing talent spotting who is below giving them the experience and every exercise that we ever went on any simulation that we went on you always killed the boss because it's the only way that you then stressed you know the next 11 as it were yeah, yeah. Uh, and and to see how it came because the last thing you want is somebody's you know become a boss himself and he's, he's never been stressed before yeah no. you, you you need that to happen whereas in civilian uh, life what i what i found is is they self move themselves nobody is mentoring or career managing them in a centralist way no. they're not looking down at, at trying to that make the people them because they think their firm is just going to go and recruit their replacement rather than grow it. Well, that, that many things, Jim, um, come up from that. One is uh, when uh, one of my daughters was at uh, Cambridge, 
she was told that what happens here is it's fofo. And she said, what's fofo? It's F off and find out. And, yeah, and yeah. Find out. You know, you have to go to the library and find it yourself. Yeah. No one's going to really develop and, and teach you. And when I was with the, the commandant, Paul Nansen, again yesterday, and he is an incredibly inspiring guy, and some of the other people who run leadership and development across the army, we're all in a, a meeting together discussing the Inspiring Leadership Trust, the, the charity that my wife Lee runs. Um, he talked about it, it's about leading and learning, <clears throat> all the time leading and learning. And uh, a lovely quote from someone was that uh, all leaders are readers, but not all readers are leaders. And, you know, you with your work with the Americans, uh, and I think that's so fascinating with, perhaps you might want to say a bit about that now, really, about the fact that there was this constant uh, desire to learn, grow, uh, lead and and have the best that you can pull upon. Do you want to say a bit about that? Yeah, uh, I'm not surprised. So, you know, a chap who's my close friend now, H.R. McMaster, was a doctor, PhD, sponsored by the American military. But he's a a full general Uh, in America now, isn't he? Full general now in America. We were colonels together sort of at the time. And David Petraeus, who was was our boss, is very inspirational very brave commander, what he did when he came in. Another, you know, they called him a warrior monk, and but but another PhD holder. You know? Really? Wow. And um, I'm sometimes envious of the resources and the far-sightedness that the US military took about about educating mm. uh, their you know their you know their officers. I'm you know I, I did a master's degree while while serving and sort of you know sort of said you know if I'd just been given the space and time because once you get into the, the, the academic world your juices start flowing you have these ideas and you say well I want to turn this into something else yeah. um, and we're a smaller army uh, our resources are not you know what, what the US can, can bring to it but um, yeah, I, you know, I found it uh, I found it very inspiring but and far from I, I've heard an argument, a risk-averse argument, says before that if we overtrain our people, we make them, we make them therefore attractive to civilian industry, and they leave. And I think completely the opposite. And uh, not overtrain. You invest in our people. You get the very best out of them when they serve, and they don't become anxious about leaving because they are being developed all the way, yeah, all the way through. There was a, I think that's so uh, apt. And someone said to me uh, when they were complaining about the cost of training people, he said, look, okay, so we'll train them and they may leave. How about if we don't train them and they stay? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like worse, you know. If you think education's expensive, try the cost of ignorance. And it's really, I mean, seriously, I've seen this time and again, people who are really ignorant and don't learn. uh, Or even worse, people, there's... um, that growth mindset versus fixed mindset by Carol Dweck. And she said this growth mindset is you're prepared to admit you don't know, you're going to learn, or also unlearn some of the old things you have. And every opportunity, someone else, you doing well, doesn't mean I can do less well. I'm pleased for you, you know, to wish you the best and that you'll succeed, rather than this relative deprivation because you do well, I've done less, and you've got a bit of my pie. That kind of mindset. But I do come across a lot of people with fixed mindset. No, at my age, I'm 50, you know, you won't, which I'm not, um, you know, I, I can't learn anymore now because I'm 50, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. No, the old dog does need to need, learn new tricks. Oh, I, you know, I learn every day. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> some age of, uh, of mine, lovely chap called Steve Smoothie, close friend now. Our professional relationship at the time was friendly, but respectfully so. But uh, we'd be, you know, he, he was commissioned as a late entry officer. 
uh, and uh, I made a point of of just trying to lift his his eyes to a bigger horizon. I knew he was going to be commissioned as an officer. Steve, I want to start thinking about bigger ideas, and so we always, you know, we spoke about uh, about things which seemed to stretch him. And he used to say to me, "Every day a school day, sir. Every, every day is a school day." <laughs> That's a very good expression. Every day is a school day. And and Jim, before we 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 um, we bring this to a, a close because I've really enjoyed this, and uh, we could we could chat for hours. Um, just perhaps leave everybody with uh, two or three tips, you know, practical things that people could use in business leadership things, any of these issues from, from experience that you'd want to pass on? Yeah. So, I mean, in the, the top tip I gave you know, about the video about you know, situational awareness, um, and maybe it's, a, it's a, a phrase, and there are quite a few military phrases that have made, made their way into, into the you know, civilian use, but sometimes, a little bit like PowerPoint, it's a title without a depth of understanding behind it. So I want to unpack what I mean by situational awareness. <clears throat> Making sure everybody understands the common purpose, the what. Uh, you know, or the why. Or the why. Yeah, the why. Um, uh, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to do that. Enable communication uh, so that that situational awareness is shared uh, and people can understand the bigger picture that they're, they're working. But that communication has to be warm and generous. It's not a hospital pass. It's not a memo or an email or whatever. Use some humility and some emotional intelligence to make sure that you can impress your personality, that you can put, put accent on the important things uh, to do so. And delegate those communications and the outputs that you do on your critical path of what you're trying to do to people to grow resilience within an organisation, encourage people to make decisions, make mistakes, uh, and build their own personal resilience uh, as as they do that. And communicate it. You, you, the, the military used to have a, a you know a very um, active <clears throat> lessons learned progress or process or lessons identified. Yeah. And they can't call it lessons learned until 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 they are. And uh, in, in many cases, it always centred on what had gone wrong. Mm. Uh, uh, and it's right that you should examine what had gone wrong. But not enough time is ever given to what went right. Yeah. Uh, and, into, and build confidence within a, an organisation that actually does most things right. Nobody ever makes mistakes on purpose, yeah. I, I've, I've found. I used to, used to labour... Um, my senior NCOs were that, that I said, mistakes are made for three reasons. Firstly, we've not trained them. So how can you blame somebody if they're not being trained? Yeah. And secondly, you might have trained them, but it was a long time ago and you've not exercised them in that. And so <coughs> they need more practice at it. And third, they're bone idle. And that's when they need a kick up the backside. Yeah. Um, you know, they've been trained, they've been practiced, and they're just not performing. That's when you can sort of motivate them. But... I've found often too many people just resulted to, you know, a size 10 motivator yeah, with, without any thought behind it. Yeah. So, yeah, situation awareness and unpack it. 
what what does it really mean? Yeah, brilliant. Jim, once again, fascinating. Uh, we could have chatted for hours, but I think uh, we'll leave it at that stage. Thank you very much indeed, and wishing you continued success as CEO. My pleasure. Thank you. So, now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.